It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And this is the aforementioned Eagle One, otherwise known as Mark Tempest, and uh, Sal is stuck in an airplane someplace, so those of you who are listening today get to listen to my dulcet tones. Our guest today is uh, a really interesting uh, gentleman named Rear Admiral Tim uh, Zemer, who was the coordinator of the President's uh, malaria initiative and uh i'd like to welcome to our show admiral zemer are you there uh yes i am uh, it's nice to join you today thank well thank you very much for taking the time to be with us uh, could you describe for our audience exactly what the president's M- malaria initiative is sir sure um the president's malaria initiative was uh one of the foreign assistance programs that was uh, started underneath uh, President Bush. If you uh, back the clock up, uh, you, you, it's, uh, it's clear one of his priorities was the continent of Africa, and he focused in on education and business development. Uh, a couple years into his administration, he realized that the HIV ac- epidemic was undermining both education and economic development. And when he saw the very serious impact that HIV was having on uh, uh, the total population, he launched the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And uh, that has become the engine in turning the tide of HIV, not only in Africa, but globally. About a year and a half after that, it was brought to his attention, and he understood that uh, that malaria was uh, a huge problem as well. In fact, there were more people uh, dying of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa than HIV. And while it focused in on a completely different uh, target and population group, it was having a devastating impact on the continent. And uh, so in 2005, he launched the President's Malaria Initiative as a, an announceable at the 2005 G8 conference and uh, pledged at that point $1.2 billion over five years to uh, help 15 focus countries achieve the uh, UN Millennium Development Goals. And in malaria, that was to reduce uh, morbidity and mortality by 50% by the end of 2015, which is this year. 
And uh, <clears throat> so when he launched it, he challenged the other G8 countries to uh, step up to the plate and match the U.S. commitment. And he also challenged the private sector to uh, step up to the plate and participate as well. Uh, so that was the birth and the genesis of the President's Malaria Initiative. In 2006, as it was uh, coming together, I was asked to uh, lead it uh, as the U.S. Global Malaria Coordinator. Uh, we focused initially uh, to scale up in uh, 15 countries. We uh, started in three the first year, expanded it to seven uh, the following year, and then uh, rounded out to 15 in the third year, and uh, targeted on uh, specific most at-risk population groups, uh, which happens to be kids under five and pregnant women. If you step back and think about malaria, while it's not considered a uh, a problem here in the United States. It used to be, but it's no longer a problem. Uh, while we still have cases, most of those are imported, uh, we still live in a malarious planet. Uh, about 2.5 to 2.8 billion people are at risk of malaria in Asia and Africa. Uh, when this program started, <clears throat> over a million people were dying of malaria each year, and three to five hundred million were uh, uh, being infected by malaria. So it was huge, and uh, ninety percent of the sickness and mortality was happening in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and of the mortality, eighty-five to ninety percent were kids under five and pregnant women, and so. Uh, when we entered the 15 countries, we focused on those two at-risk population groups to help the countries achieve their UN uh, Millennium Development Goals. And let me just uh, summarize this series of comments that here we are finishing up the 2013 spending and 2014 money is now flowing, but we have uh, virtually achieved the president's initial vision of a 50% reduction of morbidity and mortality. Uh, in fact, it has become known as one of the most successful U.S. government foreign assistance programs, not because it met a need, but because of the impact that uh, we've had. Uh, last month, the World Health Organization uh, put out their annual malaria report, and uh, they reported that 4.3 million deaths have been averted from malaria, and there's been an, a drop in all-cause child mortality and, uh, across the board, an average of 59%. So uh, with those very dramatic figures, it's... Uh, not only recognized by the, the World Health Organization, but it's recognized throughout Africa uh, as a uh, huge uh, factor in uh, reducing the burden of malaria on uh, the health system.
has uh, how did you get? I mean, other than the fact that you got appointed to the position in 2006, how did how, what was your background that got you in the position to be appointed to this this particular job? Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm asked that frequently, particularly by scientists and professional public health people and <laughs> medical doctors. Uh, uh, I uh, graduated from college in 1968 and uh, turned around when I got my draft notice, and there were some guys in white uniforms. They happened to be Navy recruiters. And uh, I turned around, dropped my draft notice on the table, and uh, therein lies my uh, entry into how I got into the Navy. I ended up in Pensacola, went through flight school, and spent uh, a career as a rotary wing uh, pilot uh, with the U.S. Navy. So my professional career was you know, serving uh, the country and the taxpayers uh, at sea as a naval aviator. Uh, I had my opportunity and privilege to command several squadrons and a couple of air wings, and uh, I uh, went into the amphibious route, but my major command was uh, uh, shore, and then the mid-Atlantic regional commander was my last uh, assignment out of Norfolk. When I left the Navy, um, Having been raised in Asia and been exposed to uh, an awful lot of uh, need on the foreign front, uh, I had an inkling to get into something in the humanitarian uh, world. Uh, the board of directors at World Relief, which is a faith-based humanitarian organization out of Baltimore, asked me to come up and interview and to make a long story short, I was asked to join World Relief, eventually became the executive director and served there for five years uh, doing basic humanitarian work. Um, we had five uh, uh, outputs uh, and worked in 26 countries, Latin America, Asia, but primarily in Africa. And that's where I got my training wheels on humanitarian foreign assistance. And uh, then out of the blue, one day, after uh, shortly after the president announced the president's malaria initiative, I got a call from the White House, and uh, the personnel shop asked if I would be interested in interviewing for this job. At that point, uh, I had no inclination to go back to government. In fact, I pushed it back because I just wanted to stay in the private NGO nonprofit world. But again, not to uh, extend the story, um, after a couple interviews and uh, looking at uh, the plan and the vision, I uh, told, uh, told them that I'd be more than happy to serve as the coordinator. Um, as a political appointee, um, I resigned on Inauguration Day and uh, was asked by the current administration if I would uh, continue to serve as the Global Malaria Coordinator. And so after uh, making sure that what I did and how I did it would remain constant, I told them I'd be happy to continue to serve the U.S. government and the foreign assistance in the malaria world. And so here I am. So it was kind of an unorthodox, unsolicited um, uh, way of getting to this point. I'm also asked, uh, you know, uh, you know, how does a guy that has uh, basic Navy leadership 
uh, experience and aviation experience end up in the humanitarian world. Um, I'm the only person in my whole organization that doesn't have a Ph.D. or a master's in public health or entomology or epidemiology. My deputy is a pediatrician who's served years in Africa. So I think it points back to the skill set that most individuals in the military and the Navy and the officer corps has, and that's an understanding of mission, uh, mission accomplishment, uh, focus, uh, you know, planning, uh, working with people, and then making sure that the timelines and the attainment uh, targets are met, and uh, just it's basic leadership management 101. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, I know when I was involved with some uh, humanitarian uh, situations in the, during the Kosovo thing that some of the NGOs and uh, IOs and GOs were a little reluctant to deal with me as a as a military uh, person. Does do you see any impact on your background? Does that affect anybody anyway, or is that or are you well past that at this point? No, that's really a good question, and I think it it uh, is an issue, and it and it. Uh, and it's relevant depending on where you are in what organization. Frankly, I experienced some pushback when I went from the military into the faith-based private NGO because there's a subculture and a culture there where rites of passage is really important. Many of the folks in the humanitarian work uh, actually look at the military as part of the problem in some cases or just don't get what long-term development humanitarian work is all about. And uh, so it took a while just to understand the culture and fit in. I did a lot of listening and learning. And eventually, just like anything else, uh, uh, when uh, folks realize that you're all about mission and taking care of the team and uh, all, then the uh, barriers break down. In government, the civilian military uh, component has been an issue and it has improved in because of a lot of work uh everyone recognizes uh, nobody can do disaster response in terms of logistics uh management getting people on point uh, better than the military uh earthquakes tsunamis uh et cetera et cetera uh the, re- the recent ebola crisis again they uh, the military is kind of the go-to group because there's a understanding and appreciation of the logistics as well as the leadership component. Uh, where it becomes a little bit more of a challenge is when you look into the long-term development objectives, and that's where uh, it's a work in progress from my perspective of integrating resources technical assistance in order to come together on the same project. A lot of uh, effort has been uh, is ongoing in that space. I think there's a lot of room for improvement. It's uh, the awareness is much higher and I think the uh, our our uh, uh, experience and success uh, is all over the map depending on the country and the program that you might uh, be thinking of. I know any conflict area like Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, clearly uh, is a challenge when you bring the military and the civilian efforts together to do development. Yes, sir. Um, 
as as we've as you've gotten into this program, have the have the approaches taken to try and get control of malaria changed? And I guess maybe that fundamentally, we're asking. I'm asking the question: what 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 are the efforts we make to control? How do you control yeah. attempt to control malarial outbreaks? Yeah, if you look at where malaria is today, uh, malaria is uh, is categorized in uh, as a disease of the poor. Uh, and hence, in many of the more impoverished, undeveloped places in Asia and specifically in Africa. Um, the contradiction is we know what malaria is. We know how it uh, it happens. We know what causes it. We know how to prevent it. And yet uh, hundreds of thousands of people still catch it and die from it. Uh, so over the years, thanks a lot to the Department of Defense research teams, as well as our research that's come from different universities and the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, we've we've over time developed uh, very effective uh, interventions. And the President's Malaria Initiative has taken four of those interventions and packaged those in our uh, program. Uh, we have of the four, there are three that are uh, prevention uh, to keep people from uh, being bitten by the mosquito and to uh, have the parasite injected into their system. Uh, the first one is the distribution and use of insecticide-treated uh, mosquito nets. Uh, over since the program began, uh, we have. Uh, with our partners, the Global Fund, the World Bank, and uh, the British have seen uh, over 400 million bed nets distributed to Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we also, the second intervention is to uh, use insecticides and spray the indoor walls of homes and the living uh, dwellings of people who are at risk. Uh, we there has been spraying ongoing in Africa, but it's been hit and miss. It's it's the principal reason that we got rid of malaria in the 50s. But uh, we have uh, started in all of our countries, but a couple, a very uh, effective indoor residual spraying program, uh, and that's touched. Uh, about 20 to 21 million households each year. And if you add the cumulative up over the seven years, it's touched about 10% uh, of the at-risk population group in Africa. So that's the second intervention. It's, it's one of the prevention ones. And the third prevention intervention is we target not only kids under five, but pregnant women. And, uh, uh, when the women go into the prenatal clinics for their workups, we uh, recommend and encourage two to three doses of a uh, preventative treatment. It's uh, sulfur dioxide paramethamine. And if they have parasites in their system, that'll help uh, mitigate that or clear that. And uh, uh, so that's part of the prevention uh thinking and planning. We have also introduced uh, rapid diagnostic test kits. If you presented at a clinic with a fever, 
we'd uh, poke your finger, and within a minute and a half to two minutes, this little test device would indicate whether or not you were positive or negative for malaria. And if you are uh, positive, then uh, we make available a uh, anti-malaria drug. It, uh, we, there are several variations of them. We refer to them as uh, artemisinin combination therapies, which this has this wonder drug component that uh, was originally uh, uh, developed in China and is now part of a chemical uh, 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 cocktail, if you will, that's packaged in pills. And if you have malaria and you take uh, the treatment, you'll be back on your feet in two days. So that, so that's the treatment intervention. So we, as we've scaled up in all these countries, we've uh, we've targeted the at-risk population group, kids under five and pregnant women, and tried to provide 80 to 85 percent coverage of these three prevention and then one uh, curative intervention. So that's. That's how we plan our budgeting and our uh, program, and uh, and it's uh, been quite effective. I, the one point that uh, I often make is while these interventions are not perfect and they're certainly not applied perfectly in every uh, province and district and village and countryside, uh, we we still have seen major significant progress uh, accomplished as a result of this uh, strategy in all the places that we're working. Well, that's pretty impressive. How um, I know there's some controversy about whether, like these uh, insecticide impregnated nets, uh, whether they're the uh, mosquitoes or the are building up an immunity to these things is is are, are, what is the latest uh, story on that and are there new technologies coming down the pike to uh, to help correct some of these issues? Yeah, that's really a, uh, an important question because if you look at where we are today and the risks to continue and sustain a program, resistance by the uh, mosquito we call it the vector, but the resistance by the mosquito is a major risk looking forward because mosquitoes are not only uh, the most dangerous animal in the world because of all the disease they carry, but they're pretty smart little creatures and they develop resistance to things like insecticides. The uh, other uh, problem that we deal with is the resistance that the parasite that actually gives you malaria develops. And these parasites equally are as uh, brilliant and develop resistance to the anti-malarial uh, drugs and chemicals. So we have a two-fold uh, two problem, resistance by the mosquitoes and resistance uh, by the parasites. Now, uh, the, the point that I think is important for everyone to understand, we had malaria in the United States and we broke the cycle. Uh, we still have the mosquito that carries malaria the Anopheles mosquito, if you have a uh, barbecue in your backyard this summer, you're going to be annoyed by the mosquitoes. Uh, that mosquito carries, could carry the parasite if it was uh, around, but uh, fortunately we got rid of the parasite and we broke the cycle. Mosquito nets are designed to help break that cycle, and they 
uh, a number of years ago, our colleagues at CDC Atlanta and other scientists came up with this idea of impregnating the fiber of the mosquito net with a pyrethroid insecticide. So it not only deterred the mosquito, but it also killed it if the mosquito landed on the net prior looking for uh, someone to bite. Since pyrethroid is the only insecticide used for this uh, uh, impregnation of mosquito nets, and the fact that the mosquitoes now are developing pyrethroid resistance, it it is a problem for us. And we are working with some product development programs. Uh, we're partners in working with a group out of uh, Liverpool, England, where they're looking at different uh, uh, insecticides that can be used as an alternative to pyrethroids uh, and still accomplish um, the same uh, effect. Uh, Mosquitoes are also developing resistance to the insecticides that we use for spraying on the inside of uh, the homes. Pyrethroids uh, uh, is one of the major insecticides. Uh, for years, DDT was used. We used DDT to get rid of the mosquitoes here in the United States and the bed bugs up in New York City. Uh, but then when uh, Rachel Carson uh, led the movement to get rid of DDT because of the risks that was perceived uh, in eggshell development and the persistent pollutant effect of that. DDT was stopped being produced here in this country, and uh, as a result, uh, DDT has been on the uh, list of insecticides to watch. The bottom line is it is uh, still on the WHO UN effective insecticide uses use. Uh, it's one of 12 uh, but over the years, the mosquitoes have developed a resistance to DDT as well as a building resistance to pyrethroids. So what we're forced to do is look at a, the series or the uh, uh, insecticides available, and we alternate the spraying cycle so that we can try to uh, get out in front of the uh, uh, mosquitoes to abate and minimize the potential to develop resistance to any specific insecticides. So let me just stop there to see if you might have any more questions about that particular issue. Well, I knew that DDT was a a kind of controversial uh, insecticide and because of the Silent Spring, uh, Rachel Carson book, and and, and apparently there's still a number of uh, scientists who are concerned about its use. but the, there are also people who contend that if we were using DDT, that, that millions of more lives would be saved uh, if it were, if we're, you know, because we could get rid of this problem before the mosquitoes, I guess, had a chance to to um, mutate or they were be immune to it. Is am, am I wrong in in that, or is there some? I know I just know it's controversial at this point. I guess it is controversial, and it's. Uh... You know, and and uh, I think it's important to understand that everything we do from our programming is in compliance with the environmental regulations, et cetera, et cetera, both on the international side, the U.S. regulations, as well as the country side, uh, the countries that we're working in. The 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 fact that DDT is on the WHO World Health Organization's approved insecticide. Uh, 
uh, list means that it has gone through all of the requisite scientific testing, and there is no evidence that spraying it on the inside of the homes causes any harm to uh, the residents. And so used appropriately, it is effective, it's uh, safe, and it's the most affordable, and it lasts the longest. But because of the environmental concerns uh, and because of the resistance, it's becoming a uh, less frequently used or available uh, insecticide. Uh, there are many ministers of health in Africa that would um, like to uh, uh, increase not only insecticide, but the use of DDT. For us, the concern of resistance to the insecticide, not from a, 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 a risk uh, perspective, but an effectiveness perspective, is what we're uh, doing. In fact, since we've started the President's Malaria Initiative, where we had basically zero baseline to measure anything to see how much impact we are having, we have paid for and uh, trained uh, over 100 surveillance sites in the 19 countries where we're uh, working so that it becomes a technical resource to test for insecticide resistance to bed net use as well as the indoor residual spraying. So there is a capacity building and a health systems uh, building component to our resistance. And it allows us now to make more strategic uh, decisions on the periodicity and the cycling of uh, and when we might need to switch to a different insecticide. Do um, it seems to me that when I was a kid, one of the things they were always concerned about was, and I'll call it draining the swamp. But, but uh, you know, the, we didn't want standing water around. There were a lot of reasons for that. But is that an issue? Are, is it a swamp-related issue? There's too much standing water. Is it a rainforest issue for the parts of Africa where uh, uh, your your focus is? Yeah, I think it's a matter of degrees. I think uh, if you look at where the malarious belt is in Asia. It's uh, the warm uh, equatorial climate, and it extends all the way from Asia into Africa. There, There is no such thing as no standing water and no swamp area. And then when you look at the <clears throat> characteristics of the mosquito, which is primarily the Anopheles mosquito, which is a female night biter, uh, and the characteristics is to fly into a home uh, and bite from dawn, uh, dusk to dawn. That's what the entomologists have figured out. Then when you look at money available and the effective interventions, uh, we haven't focused, nor will we, on uh, draining swamps or larva, uh, providing insecticide treatment on lakes and ponds. Uh, we could use up our whole budget in one country doing that, uh, at the expense of uh, benefiting from the effectiveness of the four interventions that we're supporting. So uh, there is communication that goes out to the people that if there is a old tire or a coconut shell or a, uh, an object collecting water to flip it over 
because it it's a potential source of uh, larva uh, developing, but uh, that's not uh, an area that we're investing money in or focusing in at this point. How how is the response of the countries that you've uh, this program is in effect? Is it are they recognizing its worth and appreciating the uh, the contributions of the U.S. taxpayer to to help out their problem? Yeah, one of the most enjoyable uh, aspects of my job from the perch that I uh, uh, engage in is that I get to travel and meet with presidents and prime ministers and ministers of health. And I can say uniformly there is genuine, sincere recognition recognition of what the U.S. government has done through their foreign assistance funding for uh, not only for uh, development of roads and bridges and agriculture and uh, education, but in health. And when you, when you, when I step into a meeting, uh, there's immediate recognition that without what the U.S. government has invested, and now we're passing through $4 billion since Bush uh, made the announcement, and we have had strong bipartisan support by Congress to fund this initiative, through both administrations, uh, people recognized that uh, not only is the political commitment there and the leadership, but we're providing the funding and the technical assistance that's really turned the tide and reduced the malaria deaths and the uh, unburdening of the health systems in many of these countries. And so there is genuine recognition and appreciation by the leadership and the people for what this program has done for the mother and the father and the child in some of these remote uh, villages. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, you, I know that you, for example, uh, got malaria when you were living in, in Vietnam, I guess. Um, you know, in the, in the, in the movies, it always shows people who had malaria occasionally still get, um, chills and and kind of a recurrence of that is that is that an old wives tale uh, suitable only for world war ii or is, is that going yeah, on now uh, that, no uh i i think it's important to understand that uh, there there are four different types of parasites that cause malaria uh the most dangerous parasite uh is the falciparum parasite which uh is the one that causes the majority of the problem in uh, Africa. In Asia, primarily, it's the vivax uh, parasite. And uh, the stories that you hear about recurring malaria uh, is residual and uh, factual from uh, the Second World War when so many of our folks were in the Pacific. Um, With falciparum, there's no relapse. Uh, Once the parasites are in your system, Uh, You're either going to stay sick for a while until the immunity for adults deal with it, or you die. Uh, Kids under five haven't developed the immunity. Uh, Pregnant women have a weakened immunity, and so the the impact of that uh, parasite is significantly more severe. With Vivax, uh, there's less mortality, but you still get sick. The chills, the flu-like symptoms, you're just on your heels uh, uh, for several days. Now, uh, there is 
a possibility for relapse if you have Vivax. And I'm told by the scientists and my experts that typically, if it's going to happen, the, the, the relapse for the Vivax parasite would happen within three to four years. Um, so, uh, yeah. So let me that that that's that's uh, possible uh, to have the relapse. But if if in fact you're diagnosed with malaria and you're treated, chances are uh, all the parasites will be uh, 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 taken care of, and you won't get the relapse. Ah, well, I guess that's good news. Among the uh, among the um, other countries, I mean, you, you've mentioned that, that it's a huge problem in Africa, and, and it sounds to me like if you're if you're able to reduce a death a mortality rate of eighty percent of children under five who have acquired um, malaria, that that you're saving generations uh, as you go through this. Is, is there a similar situation in South America and in Asia, or are they just a, a completely different uh, ball of wax? Uh, it's uh, it's a completely different scenario at this point. If uh, again, if if you just back up historically, at the end of World War II, there were 200 plus countries that were considered in the malaria zone, including the United States and many of the European countries. Since then, the the world has continued to work against malaria, fight against malaria, and right now, according to the World Health Organization, we're down to 104. So we've reduced the malaria footprint by 50% since the Second World War. Part of that reduction has occurred not only in the northern hemisphere, but also in Latin America. Now, we still have uh, malaria as a problem along primarily along the Amazon River Basin. And our program is working with uh, seven countries, uh, but the whole approach is so much different. Uh, we're, we're working with providing technical assistance and coordination because if you look at the morbidity, just the number of people who are getting sick and those who are being treated successfully and then those who are dying uh it's it's a completely different universe so it becomes more of a burden on the health system and a adverse impact on the population so i would say if the if the progress that's being made now in latin america and in the caribbean continues as they're moving we could envision a malaria-free Caribbean and Latin America within 10 or 15 years, okay? Uh, that said, we're not focusing there. We're allowing those countries to do their own malaria prevention and treatment. In Asia, uh, China uh, had no deaths that, we, uh, that were reported along the southern Yunnan province. Uh, India... And Southeast Asia is where the majority of the malaria cases are. Uh, and if you look at Southeast Asia, Burma and Cambodia uh, uh, have the largest concentrations of morbidity and mortality. But the number of people dying from malaria in Southeast Asia and, and India are so much reduced 
than uh, what's happening in Africa. So we, we're working right now in Southeast Asia uh, for two primary reasons, to help Cambodia and Burma reduce the footprint of the malaria impact, but then also to work with the research communities and the governments and the Gates Foundation to, to identify a, an emerging resistance that we're seeing developed by the parasite to this miracle drug, this artemisinin compound. And so we've scaled up our investment primarily to understand this emerging resistance to try to uh, not only understand it, but figure out what can be done with it before it moves into India and then possibly into Africa. So again, our focus on what we're investing and how we invest is different in Southeast Asia than it is in Africa. Um, so we're global, but I would say 95% of our focus and funding go into Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, let, let's uh, talk a little bit about. You, you've mentioned a couple of times now the impact on the on the medical systems in the affected countries. Let's talk about the total impact on on some of the countries in Africa uh, when they're when they are malaria ridden, if you will. Uh, what what are we looking at? What 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 problems do they face uh, that that we're helping yeah. them defeat? Yeah, let me give you a bit of anecdotal. Uh, an anecdotal story here. Uh, the last time I was in Tanzania, I jumped on a flight and went out to uh, Zanzibar. And the Minister of Health walked me through the hospital, and, he, and he's a pediatrician, and he walked me into the child's ward. And he said, when you started the President's Malaria Initiative here, 32% of the kids that presented with a fever had malaria. And he, he walked into this ward, which was empty, and he said every bed was full, and in some beds there were two to three children lying in there being treated for malaria. Today, in Zanzibar, the five islands, uh, when a kid checks in with a fever, 0.02% of those are checking positive for malaria. So the the beds were empty, and what the message is, by the reduced burden of the clinic, clinical uh, uh, work required for uh, surveillance, testing, and treatment and care, uh, it was pretty much eliminated, and that freed up the doctors and the nurses and the expenses to do something else. Uh, my deputy, again, who has served years in Africa, uh, showed me a report that in some countries, 30 to 35 percent of the uh, folks in the hospitals are malaria uh, cases. If you could remove all of those or a portion of those, again, that would free up resources for these uh, overstaffed, uh, under—I mean, overworked, understaffed hospitals and clinics to uh, do other things. So right there is a uh, just an anecdotal illustration of that. I sat next to the Minister of Health in Tanzania as they were cutting the ribbon on a new blood bank 
And I said, so what's the takeaway? And he said, there's a 50% less demand on the blood bank now than there was two years ago. And I said, what do you account, uh, you know, how do you account for that? And he said, because the malaria cases have dropped so dramatically, there's such a, uh, uh, there's a lower demand on the blood bank. So, you know, that's an indirect uh, uh, aspect of that. So when the burden of malaria goes down, it's not only unburdening the, the health system, but it also directly impacts the economics of a village, a family, or a community. Um, you might hear people put out a figure that there's a 12 to $20 billion economic impact in the malarious countries in Africa because of malaria. Well, I don't know what that means because in this day and age when we're throwing billions and billions of dollars here and there, it doesn't mean too much to me. But if you, I could take you to a small village in Malawi and introduce you to a mother who spends 34% of her disposable income on buying anti-malarial drugs for her kids. Uh, most of these moms are on the under $2 a day threshold. So 32% of that $2 a day is a huge economic impact on her. And that's and most of those moms have anywhere from three to five kids. It takes her out of the market. It takes her out of the field. It takes her out of school. Uh, three to four days for every kid that has malaria each time they have it. So you can just see the uh, the adverse impact of uh, malaria on families and communities um, in Africa. Let me just throw out one other thing. Uh, when you talk about the uh, the how, how malaria uh, links and interlinks with other aspects. Uh, if you're familiar, again, with the United Nations Millennium Development Goals, they set specific targets uh, to achieve by the end of 2015. The first one is to reduce poverty. So I, uh, with, with what I just went through, you can see how improved, uh, an improved malaria posture would help reduce the poverty aspect for a mom or an individual in a place like Malawi or in any country. Um, education is the second Millennium Development Goal, was to improve attendance and uh, uh, representation of uh, boys and girls in school. Well, when a kid does not have malaria, they get uh, the probability of them going to school goes up significantly. The, uh, the fourth Millennium Development Goal has uh, targeted maternal health, and uh, pregnant women is one of our at-risk population groups. So as we continue to mitigate the adverse impacts of malaria on pregnant women, that also targets uh, an improved contribution to maternal health. And then uh, child survival, our focus group is kids under five. That's the fifth MDG goal. And uh, then the last one is uh, seeing a reduction in infectious disease, HIV, TB, and malaria. So an effective program to counter malaria touches five elements of 
of the development program in cities and communities across different countries in the world? Well, let's uh, let's ex extend that a little bit. How does this program, uh, I would say, benefit? But what what is what is the U.S.'s gain from from uh, programs like this, uh, fighting malaria yeah. in particular? Um, I I would say much of the answer is wrapped into why do we do foreign assistance at all? And if you you know I know. I know your primary audience is uh, a national security and all things maritime audience. Um, certainly, foreign assistance and public health and malaria is not part of national security and all things maritime. But I could make a point that if you, uh, you know, throughout uh, our communities, we understand that there are three components of how we do our work overseas. One is defense. Uh, the other, it's the three Ds. The second is diplomacy, and the third is development. And the foreign assistance and the contributions to health and then malaria fall in underneath the development. And as our secretaries of defense, uh, old and new, continue to say, and our secretary of uh, uh, you know, state and the White House all embrace the three D's as part of the stool for stability, contribution, and uh, business development overseas. And uh, so I think it's pretty much a no-brainer. First of all, it's the right thing to do to help people in need when we have the resources and the know-how to do it. That's just uh, who we as American citizens are. Uh, when we uh, have the opportunity to uh, contribute to the stability and the development of communities, putting kids in school, et cetera, et cetera, that actually uh, provides stable communities and is part of who we are and, uh, and what we would like to uh, contribute to as American citizens. So let me just, I think most of us understand that, those who uh, are part of your constituency here, but I, I'm motivated by the fact that this investment in malaria contributes to the greater commitment of defense, diplomacy, and development. When, uh, is, is, has there been a, let me read for the, the question that came up in the chat room is, did the experience that was gained with fighting malaria have any value for fighting the recent Ebola outbreak? Is there a, is there a cross connect there? Yeah, it's huge. Um, we're in, uh, there are three of the main Ebola countries in West Africa. Uh, we're not in Sierra Leone, but we're in Guinea and Liberia. Uh, they had cases in uh, Senegal, uh, Nigeria, and Mali pop up, and they've been able to contain those. But it's it's huge because it represents the need to develop basic health systems, surveillance, and response when a crisis or a specific medical problem happens. Um, uh, I think it's right now the adverse impact of the Ebola crisis on the programs, the malaria, pro our malaria programs has, has been significant. Uh, Liberia and, and Guinea both are coming out of a 
are in a post-conflict uh, uh, reconstituting situation. And uh, when something like Ebola comes in and trumps uh, the other health initiatives and focus, it pretty much uh, stops us in our tracks or uh, causes a situation where we're going to have to go back and then reconstitute and figure out how do we move forward. Uh, it's, it, there's a direct linkage between Ebola and malaria. First of all, there's still more people dying of malaria than Ebola in West Africa. Uh, people who are presenting to an Ebola treatment center, uh, uh, the this, this symptoms that they're looking at, I think there are 10 sip, symptoms, uh, headaches, muscle pain, vomiting, diarrhea, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, seven of those 10 are the same that you would uh, uh, look for when you're trying to diagnose malaria. So there is a commonality between those two uh, diseases. Uh, I, I saw a statistic a couple weeks ago that uh, in Guinea, where people were being processed through an Ebola treatment center that came up uh, negative for Ebola, 33% of those folks tested positive for malaria. So while we're, there's a significant improving uh, commitment to do something about Ebola, and I'm really pleased at the progress that is being, being made, even though we're not out of the woods, uh, the, the problem of malaria has been uh, uh, exacerbated because of the distraction that Ebola has uh, created. So we're going to have to uh, we are currently looking at ways to get the bed nets that have been distributed used. Uh, we're trying to get the drugs that are on site at the clinics or hospitals distributed so those people that are presenting with fevers can benefit from uh, these anti-malarial drugs. So uh, it's something our teams on the ground are looking at and are very much aware of. You know, I was when I started doing the research for the show, Admiral. The uh, one of the things that popped up was a discussion of vaccines that uh, uh, are trying to be developed for malaria. Uh, and it's, it's what's do you know what the progress of that is, and are they are they working on it, or is it is, it, is the cure worse than the uh, the prevention in that case worse than the the disease itself? Yeah, as you focus on the long term goal and hope of eradicating malaria, eliminating it from the face of the earth. It's going to take something like an effective vaccine. To date, to date there has been uh, a tremendous amount of good research invested. Uh, the National Institute of Health, the Department of Defense, uh, the Gates Foundation through different research organizations have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in a uh, to develop a, an effective malaria vaccine, um, uh, there is a vaccine that's being tested right now in a couple sites in Africa, but it's not a cure-all like uh, people would hope and pray for that we saw in, in polio or some of the other diseases. The, as I understand it, yellow fever, the yellow fever vaccine was effective because it addressed the uh, a, a, a virus, and most of the uh, vaccines or all the vaccines that are 
produced are countering a virus. Malaria is a parasite uh, disease problem, and, and there has never been an effective vaccine to uh, uh, cure a parasite problem to date. So while there are a number of uh, potential vaccine development programs in place, uh, it's still a number of years off before we'll be able to see the uh, impact and then be able to look at how to integrate that into a strategy to help the countries and uh, reduce the global malaria burden. You know, here's, a, here's another question that comes from the uh, the chat room, but I'm going to add my own uh, preface to it, which is when I, uh, if you go out in the farms of the Midwest now and stuff, there, there are all kinds of, of genetic mutations being done to uh, insects that cause other, you know, be able, unable to mate and stuff like that um, so that the crops don't get damaged. Is there anything afoot to kind of neutralize the mosquitoes in the same way, some kind of program that prevents them from breeding and, and uh, just kind of makes them die out? Yeah, in fact, I don't have the specifics, nor do I understand the science, but I do know, uh, having spoken uh, and updated uh, different universities and research units uh, on what the president's malaria is, there is some pretty aggressive and interesting work being done on exactly that. I don't know the status. I don't know the potential impact or the ability to take a proven science and then introduce it into the world that we're uh, working in uh, and and determine that it would have uh, an effect. But I know there's a lot of interest and some pretty smart people working on that. And again, uh, if there's a breakthrough, we certainly applaud that and would be interested in the application. Well, you know, I think uh, when I was doing the research too, that, that, that at one point, 2010, I guess, there were 219 million cases of malaria, I think, reported in that year. And, and you've, you, you're saying that that's been brought down substantially, but we have a long way to go. Um, as you work through this, you mentioned some partners in these programs, the Brits, apparently, uh, the World Health Organization, and some private enterprises uh, that are involved in trying to work through this problem. Can you kind of discuss who they are and what contributions they're making to this uh, this problem? Yeah, first of all, uh, looking at where, as far as the global burden of malaria, when uh, the Bush Initiative started in 2005 and the one we're working on now, we celebrate that we've pretty much reduced deaths by 50% plus and the overall disease burden uh, by 50%. Uh, that is exceptional when you consider where we were when we started and where we are now. But I think it's really important for people to understand that the minute we take our foot off the throttle or the accelerator, uh, malaria is going to come bouncing back like a crazy spring. Uh, we've, we've eliminated malaria in several countries several times, like Sri Lanka, where they pretty much had eliminated it. And then uh, in two, uh, 19, uh, I think... Uh, uh, 80s, they had another 200,000 cases. And don't quote me on those figures. I just pull, but uh, they uh, they took their eye off the ball and uh, they got into another infection cycle. And uh, so, as we look at the progress that has been made, 
uh, we're going to have to take this all the way down to a point where we can uh, – the countries are going to be able to get their arms around it and then sustain the gains that have been made. Now, towards that end, if you just look at the math, uh, the the uh, funders of the malaria program at the global level are saying it takes between four and five billion dollars a year to meet the uh, requirements globally. We've only been uh, uh, raising about 2.0 to 2.4 billion a year through the U.S. efforts and the Global Fund, the World Bank, the countries themselves. So there is a gap, uh, but every program and every initiative has gaps to deal with. The people that uh, the partners that we're working with, they're, they're, today there's three primary funders of the malaria fight: the U.S. government. We're doing it through this bilateral program called the President's Malaria Initiative and uh, the Global Fund, which is a financing mechanism that is globally funded primarily by the U.S. and our European allies and the Japanese. And the funding for that goes to HIV, malaria, and TB and the Gates Foundation. Now, uh, the Gates Foundation is putting in a significant amount of money for the high-end research innovation, uh, the Global Fund and the U.S. government with our colleagues from uh, the U.K. are putting money into bilateral programs and country programs. Uh, the World Bank was supporting um, malaria directly a number of years ago, but now they've pulled their funding out of malaria, and they're not funding uh, disease-specific programs, but dumping it into different country basket uh, options so that the countries can uh, strategically determine where they want the money to go. So there are three, uh, there, there are four, three to four principal funders. It's the, the Brits, the United States, the Gates Foundation, and then this financing mechanism called the Global Fund. Well, uh, I don't want to stop talking to you, Errol, but <laughs> we've already used up over an hour of your time. And I, uh, this is a really interesting topic. I, you know, the people who uh, might suggest this is not the national interest of the United States, I don't think really have an appreciation of of the immensity of this problem and the good that you all are doing. But I, I certainly think uh, you, you, you kind of hinted that you didn't know how you got the job. I suspect that you're exactly the right guy to have this job, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our show today. Um, is there any final word you'd like to say before uh, before we say goodbye? No, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, uh, communicate uh, the commitment that the United States government has in foreign assistance and uh, in the disease-specific programs and malaria uh, specifically. Uh, it's a success story. We're making a huge difference, and the American people can uh, hold their heads high and uh, be happy that uh, this part of their tax dollars is uh, having an impact. Lives are being saved, and communities are, are better off. So it's a real privilege to spend a few minutes with you to communicate that message. And I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to share a few thoughts. Yes, sir. It's been a great pleasure. Thank, thank you very much for being with us and uh, have yourself a nice Navy day. All right. Great Navy Thanks day. so much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.